Hello and welcome to my Dialorama's Top Picks. I'm Abla Kandalaf, film programmer, journalist and researcher with my co-host Coco Green, armchair critic and aspiring academic. In Top Picks, like every two weeks, we discuss marginalisation, resistance and some of the isms in drama, documentary, mystery and independent films and series. Uh, last week we stretched to film theatre. Now it's 11th year, My Die Champions Independent Film, using the medium as a platform for underrepresented and oft ignored voices. You can follow us on Twitter at MyDialorama or you can uh, send us an email via our homepage. If you scroll right down at the bottom, there's a contact us button that you can click and message us. Uh, you'll be able to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, most podcast platforms. And you can uh, donate either a one-time or monthly donation at mydie.link slash donate if you like our work and subscribe to our newsletter at mydie.link slash subscribe where you'll find lots of nice offers and promo codes. This week, we're really happy to be joined by a uh, MyDie veteran, Ryan Ormond, who is a proud poet and writer. And this week, we're discussing the Flair Film Festival, so the BFI Flair Film Festival, which focuses on LGBT films and cinema, and more specifically, one of the feature films featured at Flair, which is The Obituary of Tunde Johnson. Actually, do I have any topics this week? I'm still watching lots of crime drama, so nothing ma mega exciting. I'm on to Hinterland, which is available to watch on Netflix, which is very good if you fancy something a bit, a bit escapist, I guess. It's uh, the story of a London-based copper who goes to Wales, where he's originally from, and just shacks up in this uh, deserted bit of the country in some cabin. So it's lovely, lots of shots of cliffs and mountains and nature and um, something we can all do with at the moment. Do either of you have anything you'd like to flag this week? I have one. Um, so I watched this documentary on Netflix, and I don't remember the name of it, but it was about this polka king, which I'd never heard of before. And it's Jean Levan, who was a polka sensation in Pennsylvania, but he ultimately ran a Ponzi scheme and went to prison for that. And after watching the documentary, I learned that there was a film from Jack Black. So I watched the polka king in 2017 and I actually enjoyed it. So I wasn't sure if I was supposed to, because he still won't admit to any wrongdoing, even though now he's released from prison and trying a comeback. And interestingly during his comeback, because he was in prison, he was exposed to rap music. So he like has this rap now in his polka. Okay. So what, what's his crime cheating at polka? No, it's polka P O L K the music. Oh, <laughs> I'm not British. I would not pronounce poker that way. So polka is, uh, I think it's like, I think it's an American tradition to be honest, even though it's from like Eastern European. So he's from Poland. Yeah. So I can read you the synopsis of the film. So the polka king is an American biographical comedy directed by Maya Forbes. The film is about real life Polish American polka band leader, Jean Levon, who was imprisoned in 2004 for running a Ponzi scheme, which oh, he right. did. So initially he was doing all of this. And that's the thing. Apparently he's pretty talented in the documentary. They show snips from his, shows and people loved him he's very charismatic and he's a good even though polka music's not my thing he is a talented vocalist and he writes his own music and he had a band and 
just wanted so desperately to live the American dream. So he was trained as an opera singer, but he couldn't find work doing that when he immigrated to Canada and then to the U.S. So that's when he got into the polka music and had his own band and audiences, but he wasn't really making much money. So he was trying these other business ventures and one was to sell Polish crafts and just cultural, I don't want to say cultural artifacts, but, you know, just stuff that people could Tapped. buy. Uh, no, I was I was thinking more, th- you know, things you would get in a, when you go travel and you get a, like from a, souvenir, a souvenir shop. Yeah. Exactly. So because he also had this other thing later where he was, well, so let's start with this. So initially he had that shop, but as you can imagine, the gift shop wasn't bringing in a ton of money. But he was running it like, oh, you can invest in this and you can make all this money because I just need to grow the business. Because as you can imagine, any business, you need lots of startup capital. So initially, the IRS told him, you can't do that. That's illegal. You have to be registered to sell securities. You can't just go out and sell people shares in that way. And he said he would stop, but he didn't. And really, he used the money to pay for the band and the music. So it's not like he was living some lavish lifestyle. He wasn't. He was living in the community where his wife was from and just doing his music. But you know how it costs Mm -hmm. a lot to uh, do your music thing and record. And he was nominated for a Grammy, actually. He didn't win, though. Um, Traveling. You know, all that stuff costs a ton of money to do. So it's not like he was stealing it to do some crazy stuff. And the thing about it was, I think... Yeah, just I I think he just kind of caught up in the desperation to have that success story. And he even had a song about it, about being an American and coming to live his dream. And you just almost feel sorry for him. But then at the same time, he stole people's money. But then it goes back to American. You know, I love watching American Greed. I've not yet seen him featured on there, although he may have been. But I've watched many, many episodes of it. And there is that element where you question, even though people are victims when they get taken advantage of, you're like, well, weren't they greedy too? So that's something that the character, they wrote his mother-in-law to be very suspicious. Like, how can you make all this money? It's not possible. I've worked in your gift shop for free. No one pays me to be there and it's dead. No one comes in there. How are you making all this money? So they, they wrote her character. I don't know if she was like that in real life. But it does make, you know, that was something she told one of the people who criticized because once they sent him to prison, kind of, you know, I think it was an election year. So they ended up sending him to a rough prison and they thought he was a child molester. And so someone stabbed him and tried to kill him. And there's a scene where the people whose money was stolen, they say, oh, I wish they would have finished the job. Like I wish you would have died. And then the mother-in-law lashes out. And it's like, you were greedy. Why did you think you could get 20% and the bank was offering five? You're greedy. You're greedy. And that comes up in American Greed too, where it's like, okay, of course, no one should be taken advantage of at the same time. What makes you think that someone can give you a 20% return where no one's getting that anywhere else? So yeah, but it was a good film. I enjoyed it. So I'd encourage people to watch it. It's Jack Black, so it's going to be funny, right? And nice. But I'm not I'm not sure if I should have enjoyed it, but I did. Was it available? Netflix. Okay. So it's The Polka King 2017. Thank you very much. Ryan, welcome. Hello. Any top picks for you this week? Well, actually, talking about that film, it made me think two... Th- it reminded me of two things. One, that quite recently I saw... Bernie, the Jack Black film. Have either of you seen that? No. I've never heard of it. Okay, so it's a Richard Linklater film. 
starring Jack Black, Shirley MacLaine, and Matthew McConaughey. And it's based on a true story. And he plays Bernie, who is a mortician, um, who this whole, it's a true story, this whole uh, town um, in the South um, is is sort of really enamored of him because he's he's so thoughtful and attentive and and he treats um you know all their loved ones well after they died and then he uh gets together with Shirley MacLaine and I don't want to give too much away but it's it it it, it gets things get interesting <laughs> shall we say and it's really great performance from Jack Black and the tone is just really and it's a bit different from other Linklater films you might have seen where, uh, where oh, did yeah. you watch it on I think that was Netflix as well. And then the other thing it made me think of is because of the poker, polka, um, today we're going to be talking about um, a time loop film. It's almost a genre, isn't it? The time loop film. It's it's not quite, but it's... And the most famous one is Groundhog Day. And the song that plays over and over again is the Pennsylvania polka. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of funny that you should bring that, that up. Ooh, nicely shoehorn in there. Yeah, no, no, I did like Groundhog's Day. Well, I'm interested to talk about the film because I'm actually pretty critical of it, even though there's things I liked. I'm, I, okay. I, yeah, I see what you're saying. I think there's definitely stuff to talk about. Yes, no, we can't wait. Well, should we start? Did you, did someone, did you want to, uh, Ryan, give a synopsis of the film and then we can discuss? Yes. Yeah. Um. And maybe a little background as well, because I don't know if either of you are aware of this, but um, it's uh, the screenplay was written by a 19-year-old. Yes. Yes, I was, because I watched the um, the post-film discussion. Just because of some of the way the story is handled and um, you know how teenagers are kind of like terrible philosophers. <laughs> I would never shade a young person. Shame on you. They can be. And um, if anyone's read Adrian Mole or something like that, you know. Um, and I think this this kind of crops up, although I think I am, I think it's a very impressive conceit uh, as a whole. I mean, as I said, this 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 kind of this way of making a film has been done, but I never like this. Um, and also the approach is interesting that it's not a it's not a comedy. It's not about um, the kind of time loop film where you're you're trying to learn each time because his memories of the previous loop aren't really there or they're sort of mm-hmm. vaguely there and he's um, taking Xanax. So he's, you know, that comes into it, this, this state of mind where he's not quite sure what's going on. Okay, wait, sorry. Before you go into it, Ryan, though, can you give a synopsis of the film? Okay, so... Yeah. yeah. So this is um, set in LA, and it centers on a kind of upper upper, upper middle class, if not upper class, um, uh, Nigerian teenager who lives in in, in LA, um, and he's gay, and he goes to a kind of I guess fancy school, um, and he is um, in a secret relationship. Um, the white jock kind of type at school. And the plan is that um, he's going to come out or they're both perhaps going to come out on on this one day. Um, And he comes out to his parents, which goes pretty well. And then he sets off on a, on a car journey to meet um, his boyfriend. And then he gets stopped by police 
and shot and he dies, but then he wakes up because it's a time loop film. And then so we see over and over again the same um, day, but each thing, you know, each time um, the situation changes and we see it allows us to see that set up from a lot of different angles and a lot of different perspectives. I think that's, is that a good enough summary? Yeah. Thank you for the synopsis. You're welcome. Um, So (laughs) what did you make of the film? It's consciously, subconsciously an intersectional film. So um, I would like to first talk about the queer thing, if that's okay. Uh-huh. And just put it, just just have a look at it within the lineage of, especially those big uh, films of the last twenty years about two, you know, gay men in a relationship. So we had Brokeback Mountain, and then we had, um, uh, well, we had Moonlight, and then Call Me by Your Name. By name yeah. And there's something with all those films. There's there's. Uh, it's always like there's this union which could be an encounter or it could be a, a short relationship and there's the before and the after so there's the before this happened um and and also while it's happening there's always communication problem you know that's always part of it that they can't communicate properly properly and then this leads to the after which is oh it was all such a waste and it's uh, these films are all quite linear And so what I did like about this film that we're talking about is how it uses that conceit of the time loop to go back and to look again and again and again. And I'm just talking at the moment about the the gay relationship, even though that's only half the story. And how it just can look at that again, uh, again and again. And I think that's quite an important thing for that kind of gay story. I, mean, I mentioned those three other films because I think those are the ones that have made the biggest impact on kind of public consciousness. Um, and I think it's quite important, instead of seeing this familiar familiar art, to go back and to have and to see two gay men talking about their love and pain. And I think the only way you can do that is to force it. And not everyone's going to like that because, you know, when you have this kind of forced device in a film, not everyone is, is into that. But um, I liked it in this film for that reason. I also liked it in the English um, film Weekend. And what happens there is the conceit in that is that um, they've had a one night stand, but one of them has to leave, I think, to America at the end of the weekend forever. So they they can choose to either never see each other again or what they do and what the whole film is around is stay up the whole weekend, take some drugs to make that easier and and also the drugs facilitate this like real deep kind of questioning of each other and they and they talk it all out and I kind of like that and so 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 the bits that did that in the film um I was yeah I was there for that okay so Socorro you do you agree with that on the whole did you have a similar impression well I didn't have that impression because I don't have the reference but in terms of how they framed the relationship that I mean that was really my criticism rooted in that I thought this was I thought that the black aspect was exploited and I thought really it was a coming of age story that took a fresh take on a gay relationship between two teenagers. And I think that's what they should have stuck with because I thought, I mean, I agree with Ryan's point that it was, I thought it was really well done in something that I hadn't seen before. And there wasn't, even though one had a fear of his father's reaction because of you, 
got the sense from what he said at one point when he tried to tell the dad that his dad was homophobic, but that it wasn't centered around this sort of fear of the family, right? It was all about this thing about ambivalence. There was so much in there about friendship and the complications of trying to figure out just, I think both the pain and the joy of having a first love. I thought that it was, um, yeah. And, and I would have liked to see that explored more and about masculinity and about shame and, um, you know, and, and also they drew a character in Toon Day that was a jerk. So I also like that they didn't have this sort of, and I don't even, I'm sure there's got to be a name for this kind of trope, but it's just like this great person and oh, they sacrifice so much and do so much for everyone. They're so wonderful. No, he was a jerk sleeping with his best friend's man like that. And I like that they brought that in. So it's like in one sense, you're rooting for him, but then because you don't want him to die. But on the other sense, you're just like, he's messy. Who does that? Especially in the in the um, in the in the iteration where he says to Marley, the the, the you know the female character, um, um, back off, doesn't he? Do you remember that bit? He, he's kind of like, look, I'm sleeping with your boyfriend, so back off. And she's supposed to just suck that up. No, exactly. It was great. So I liked the fact that they made him a complicated character. And I I thought to throw in the police murder was so unnecessary. And I felt like it would. Well, well, I'll get to it. So we'll finish talking about this, but I'll get to why it was so problematic. But exactly that. I mentioned, you mean. Exactly. It, it just didn't make sense. It, 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 but in terms of that relationship with his friend, that was absolutely it. And I like that she came. I mean, this is the question, I think, both for you, you know. Ryan Abla, what did you think of her response? Because I thought she was spot on. Like, he will never end up with someone like you. Like, don't you see this is just a game for him? That's it. Um, I thought that was the reality that he couldn't face because even the advice he was giving her, and I love that part too. The fact that we give advice to our friends that we would never take for ourselves. Like, yeah. you shouldn't be a secret. And he's being a secret. <laughs> While he's telling her. No, honestly, though, so I, I like the fact that she was forcing him to look at the reality of the situation. Like, who's using who? You know, you two, what was your take on that? Well, when you say a fantasy that's not going to happen, I mean, we're talking about teenage love here. Yeah. Have yeah. that love triangle. And so it's kind of funny in a way because it's all like that, isn't it? You know? Is it? I don't know. I Don't you... Do you not know any high school sweethearts who are still together? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, that's true. You don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Wow, think... Abla, that took a turn. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Yeah, I mean, what, what what are the implications of that comment, Abla? I didn't have a. <laughs> I just wanted to drop Maybe I'm that. just bitter. <laughs> okay. 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 No. No. But you keep reading about those um, relationships where women are like oh we've been together since for, for like 20 or 30 years I've known nothing else so I'm too scared to leave and actually they're just unhappy but because they've never had any other relationship they can't really compare it to anything and they, they're just like this is another well that's lots of marriages that's not just high school marriages so I think that could I don't think that's specific to them I think that's much more common in the US the whole high school married oh. like people getting married really young having kids really young I don't know okay. whether it's because fewer people go into higher education. I I don't know, but you see it a lot in 
even American films or through American acquaintances. And I just don't see that happen that much either in Britain or in France. Are you sure that's not a London bubble? Because maybe if you move to other parts of England, I mean, I'm not saying it is. Yeah, maybe actually. Or maybe it's saying something about your circle, Alba, maybe full of upper middle class people who don't settle down into their 20s. No, they don't settle because they're poor. I don't know anyone. Anyone who's got the money to sustain a relationship. I think it could happen to anyone. And I have a more positive response generally, which I, you know, is like, I'm very impressed that you can make it through that kind of volatile period in most people's lives and and get to the point where it's sustained, especially like, especially if you then are going on to university and all that kind of, you know, all the things that lie away there and then getting through that. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Well, exactly. I'm not convinced that's real. I think people change so much in those um, in that throughout their 20s that I'm not convinced that they make it through to the other end unscathed. And who does? I don't know exactly. But that's why I don't think I, I, I think a lot. Right. I'm really generalizing. I know. But at, I, I would honestly say at least half of these relationships, they're only sustained because both parties are scared to leave. Things, revelations and, and, and things like that happen at different stages of our lives for different people. And, you know, some people have a very suspended adolescence, for example, you know. Anyway, let's get yeah, back to it. But what are the implications for our, <laughs> for our main characters here? I'd like to throw. I'd like to throw in a piece of gossip. Um, the actress who plays Marley is, in real life, engaged to Brooklyn Beckham. Oh, now that is some interesting gossip. And so they're pretty young. I mean, they're let's very. See what ha- let's see what happens there. Okay. Well, well we know what's going to happen there. So they're not. Well, you know. I mean, I think it's different when you are from a smaller place, right? And. You, you might go to for away for college, but you'll come back. That's a different dynamic versus, you know, you know what I mean. That's all I'm saying. I mean, and I and I think that goes for anyone that lives in their world. Although his parents have been married for a long time, they got together when they were pretty young, though. Actually, didn't they? Okay, yeah. Is the actress famous? Has she been in anything else? No, I, don't no, I think I think she she got some um, attention for this film just because <laughs> she's. My- That's why they cast her. It sounds like it. Nothing wrong with that. But and I certainly like to care. Well, what are we going to talk about? What do we think about uh, the third character, Soren? The uh, the triangle is he the what? What do you call the person in the middle of the love triangle? Is that just what is the person in the, the middle of the love way. triangle? <laughs> I know that the, I know that the person in the middle of a like three like threesome like as it's happening, whatever you call that. The best person in the middle is the lucky Pierre. Really? It's got a name? Yeah, oh, I've never yeah. heard of that. If it's a, like a gay threesome, the guy who's in the middle. What, well, how do you spell Pierre? Oh, sorry. It's I, in the name My Pierre. French accent. Yeah, it's Pierre the name Pierre. <laughs> anyway, that was a bit sorry. Carry on. No, it's fine. He he was lucky. So I think it does work because um, he certainly had them both. Well, honestly, he had them both where he wanted them. And he did seem, I don't, I, and that's just it. I did like it because there there were both sides of, a toxic relationship. You know, the problem I have with toxic relationships is the way they're depicted is they only show you the bad side. And this showed you how that's why it's so, because, you know, we see like it's physically abusive with a domineering drug abuse, a drug addicted, abusive monster, and then a passive spiritless victim who were just hoping it's going to meet someone to save them from the situation. And even Tunde used that language, like Soren's going to save me. And so 
I think it sh- then you know, and it would have been so easy to sh- show Soren's bad side, which is his his manipulation, but they showed that he also did care about them, right? Like he was the, seemed like the only one, even though Marley claimed to be his best friend, she didn't confront him about, clearly he had a drug problem and everybody else is acting, you know, his parents aren't really pushing and he's the only one who tries to give an analogy to say, hey, you know what my cousin went through? It's almost like a mini intervention. And then we see another side of Tundale getting very defensive and I'm not here for that. It's like, okay, so you were here for that to cheat on, you know, cheat with your best friend's love interest, but now you're not here for it when he just wants to speak some truth, right? So and so you did see like it, it takes caring about someone to say, I'm not just going to have the easy conversations. I'm going to try to, you know, if I see something that's up, I'm going to say something. So I like that. There was so much wishful thinking from Tendain, I think. And in a way you could interpret the the time loop as his wishful thinking in, in a situation, because it's not just like, the film is trying to tell you that he's trapped by certain social forces, but he's actually kind of trapped by that thing that that can happen to anyone, which is um, being, you know, infatuated in that way. And so, so, so the time loop variants are kind of, you know, those fantasies that those people, that people in that situation have of what if it went this way? What if it went, and there's a really ridiculous one, which is this perfect coming out of both of them to. Yeah. Yeah, and you yeah. think that that couldn't he couldn't that couldn't have happened in one of the versions. That just seems like pure his pure wishful thinking. I'm just pausing for a sip of wine. Okay. Oh, <laughs> What's oh, the vibe on this podcast? Is that, do we drink wine or? If you want to. Oh, it's optional. Yeah, <laughs> but of course, no, it's all optional. I think we've eaten. We've done all sorts of things. <laughs> um, I think. I'm just, I mean, the only reason... We've even ordered ice cream on delivery. Oh, Have you? Yeah. During the recording no, of the podcast? Has. I think I talked about it, but, oh, but it was, this is fantastic ice cream. Oh, my God. I've never spent so much on ice cream in my life. It, it's disgraceful. It's it's a, it's shameful. But it was so... No regrets. That's all I have to say. And, in fact, I saw a sale again, but as I don't know if I mentioned this. If Abla, yeah, she probably... Well, I probably didn't mention it. I can't even fit my jeans anymore. So, I'm like, no more ice cream. Let, let's put it down. Do you want to plug the ice cream? Maybe we get yes, free ice cream. Yes, it's called Ice Cream Union and it's on Deliveroo. Shout out to Ice Cream. Okay, we'll share. flavor. We will tag Ice Cream Union. They have a banana split and cinnamon and those are my jam. And it's the, it's the, yeah, so I'm really trying hard so um to say no to ice cream because that's that's really my downfall it's just like can i go through life saying oh i can't fit my clothes because i like ice cream can you get any lower honestly no. like that's that's pretty bad it's one thing to say i have to take steroids i have a baby i'm suffering from depression but no i just like ice cream and i can't <laughs> i can't say no <laughs> well if you want to treat yourself but without the calories can i recommend the hotel collection by aldi are you kidding <laughs> the same amount of pleasure it's not the same amount of pleasure you know but i'm glad that you didn't say that thing that everyone tells me you know if you freeze bananas and you blend them yeah i know about that (laughs) and i don't want to do that (laughs) hate those people when i had those i would they you know when i was living in london they had like these frozen smoothies with like bananas and i would add extra bananas but i would freeze them first so then it was kind of like an ice cream strawberry ice cream treat but you know my mom's take on this is to uh <laughs> freeze the <laughs> banana and then add cream sugar and milk 
I've and heard then that feed too, it yeah. to people saying, oh, it's just bananas, just bananas. Oh, 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 so she wants to lie to people. Wow. No, she genuinely believes it. She's like, oh, yeah, there's a little bit of cream, but it's essentially banana. I'm like, no, it's banana ice cream. But that <laughs> sounds good. Not made I'm making real. a note of that. That sounds so good. Man, I need to get a blender. Just buy banana ice cream. You take a whole banana, dip the whole thing in chocolate, put a stick in it and put it in the freezer. That thing. Oh, yeah, no, I've heard of that. But see, I don't, oh, I don't God. like those kinds of desserts. You know who makes a really good dessert, though? So I don't know what his issue is. So my dad makes this really amazing rum cake and he started sending it to my friend and then he sent it to me and it was perfect. And then his girlfriend and my brother kept giving suggestions on how to improve it and none of them have improved it. I'm like, who has talked you into that you didn't have the perfect thing already? Um, my dad has not, even though he keeps saying I gave you the recipe, he has never given me the recipe. It's his, it's his mom's rum cake recipe. recipe. Like that woman you mentioned earlier who never gave the secret to her youthful. <laughs> no, no, that was my grandmother. I was referring, I was, it was my grandmother and a couple of aunts I was referring to. Uh, but I'm also that way. FYI, like I, I lie about everything I use. So it's only Abla and maybe a few, few others who know the secret, but anytime ask, people ask me, oh, what do you do for your hair, your skin? I, it's all made up because it's like, no, that's my thing. You get your own. I would say you give them false information. <laughs> yes, but on good products. So the false information I'm giving them are, it's, they're still good products. It's just not what I use. <laughs> so I feel like it's a harmless lie. It's like, you know how much trial and error, how much time and money I've invested and you think you're going to waltz in here? No, you're not. You're not going to do that. Uh, but <laughs> now I kind of forgot what we were talking about. Were well, we talking? I have no idea how to transition back. I do. Nobody eats food in this film. He said nobody eats food because remember that was her whole thing. So when she got the modeling gig, her friend Marley, her friend gave her (laughs) chocolate and she's like, oh, I'll have it. No, you can't have it. Why? She's like, I'm hungry. We're all hungry. (laughs) I need a friend like her in high school. Maybe I wouldn't have these problems. I needed someone to just tell the truth. No, boo, we're all hungry. No cookies. Marley offers as a friend, really. I mean, if, if like we weren't, we weren't really, you know, that wasn't part of the story. <laughs> what what she offers as a friend? It was. I, I mean, I I agree with you. I think it was. You know, even though of course the focus was on Tunde and Soren's relationships, mm-hmm. I think he also had a toxic relationship with Marley because yes, yeah, she did stick up for him so he wouldn't get bullied. Even though that bullying wasn't that bad to me, it's like it was kind of true. I laughed. I'm like, ha ha, you do look like a vampire hunter. <laughs> I would have laughed. In in Moonlight, for example, um, Why which that that do you remember that that's that's how he gets into juvenile um, prison because Why he hit someone it? over the head with a chair. He's getting. Mm. See, it sounds like that must have been some real bullying. Then, if you're going to hit somebody with a chair, yeah, yeah, that wasn't real bullying. It's just like oh, you're and that's the thing. Even at the party, they were hanging out, so it was like. You know that that was and happen. it's not homophobic bullying, really, is it? In yeah. this film, but in, dressed, yeah, yeah. But in 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 Moonlight, it's all about how he walks. You know, from and and and, and you can see that it's been happening from a very young age as well. Um, anyway, although I would imagine if Tunde was if Marley's his only friend, people would have imagined he was gay. But just like Marley was saying, people don't really care enough in their location. I'm not saying that applies in every high school, but being in California and they're an affluent private school, I couldn't see yeah, yeah. that being so much of a... Like her friendship with 
Tunde was a secret as well. Like anybody's relationship with Tunde was a secret. Oh, I don't think it was a secret. You thought it was a secret? They were hanging out in, um, they were just inside, so not in the quad, but they were inside and there was glass all around and people were there. So people knew, I think people knew they were friends. He's not part of a gang. He's not part of a friendship gang. So she comes away from her friends to talk to him because they are, they, they, they tell us that they're, they're, they're childhood friends, right? Well, they still say they're best friends. That's how they're referencing each other. And then when she confronts Soren, she re- refers to him as her best friend. But no, I totally agree with you. And that was another, like, another one of my criticisms. Like, why doesn't he have any black friends? What's that about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's something like, I'm the only black teenager in the world. But then I guess part of it is that whole thing of him being from that set, I suppose. Although, of course, I mean, there were other black um, students in that school week. And that's what I'm saying. Why wasn't he friends with them? That was intentional, like Obama. It's intentional yeah. when you choose not to have black friends. And I'm not saying that's a problem, but I'm saying if you're going to make the film about him suffering from police brutality, you better give him some black friends. Uh, otherwise, why? Like, it just didn't make any sense because I I agree with you, Ryan, that that was also a problem for me, right? Because, okay, let's let's take a step back. So in the Q&A with the writer Stanley Kalu, he discusses the trauma of migrating from the U.S. to Nigeria and transitioning to a place, quote, where people who look like him die what he saw on the news. Mm -hmm. Now, I think this is really important because he's not an insider to that violence. He didn't say what I saw with my friends. He didn't say what I knew somebody who did. He said what I saw on the news. So that's not his life. But then he thinks he can have a voice for the people who that affects. And I think so. He said what he wanted to do with the film was combat the idea that it's black people's fault. So, but that's just it. That's not black people saying it's our fault. That's white people saying it's black people's fault. So that just shows you who he's having these discussions with. He's talking to white people who are saying it's black people's fault. and He needs to defend black people. So he's not having these conversations with black people because what black people going around saying it's our fault that police murder us. Now, The next thing he argued that he also wanted a character in Tunde that was wealthy, lighter skinned, which he was not in my opinion, but I know that that is subjective and relative to context, but I would never consider someone like that light skinned, but whatever. Oh, am I wrong? You you said said you thought he was light skinned? No, no, no. No, I agree. I wouldn't. Okay. For me, if if you say lighter skinned, I would have imagined someone who's like mixed race, like with a white parent or something. which he doesn't look like. But see, that's the thing. In the U.S., there are black people because of our legacy. Like your average black person has, you know, a quarter of their ancestors are European, right? So yeah. that's why you get light-skinned black people who don't have a white parent, but it's through the legacy of being slaves in the U.S. And we also know Nigerians have light-skinned people, right? And they should have cast one of those because that that wasn't him. But But nevertheless, this is what the writer is arguing. So he wanted Tunde to be wealthy, light skinned, and not associated with the stereotypes about the culture of poverty. So like having a fatherless home, being poor or living in the hood. So he wanted to challenge the myths that police shootings don't target poor black people. And I think this is all wrong. So he's not basing that on his research. He's just basing it on the idea. And I'm going to guess, although I don't know, because I did not research this writer, that he is writing from what he knows. He himself comes from a wealthy background and his own experience about feeling at risk being a black man, even though none of those attributes 
can be applied to him. So I can appreciate that he wants to challenge those ideas, but he misses how race works in this country, right? That's the whole point. Black people are poor. Nobody wants to say it for some reason. It's become so taboo and not respectable. And, oh, I know a black person who... We, we're probably all talking about the same black person. The reality is black people are working poor, working class. You have a few people who make somewhat of a semblance of a middle class existence. And, and that's the unfortunate truth. You know, there was a report about the top 5% of black people, top 5%, you know, if we're talking about who's the wealthiest among racial groups, their net worth is $350,000. That tells you all you need to know. Three hundred. That's the top five percent. So this oh, that's whole... not their salary. That's their net worth. No, exactly. So a house. Excellent. Yes, exactly. It is a house. It means yeah. you own your house. Yeah. So you're probably a retired person, and they're telling us that no, no, there's what. So there's not. So for him to even say that, to say no, that's the you did not live in a police neighborhood. So it's true. I think he would have been stopped by the police absolutely if he was a young black man driving those nice cars that he was. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it would have resulted in a shooting. A ticket, certainly. A little bit of harassment, jokes about him having drugs in the car. I mean, I can even talk about, and I've done this with friends, talk about my own experience about being stopped by the police. It's totally different as a woman. And there's like, oh, well, what about Sandra Bland? Yeah, there's a reason why that's so minimal. You're talking about 100 women. There's millions of black people. That's just not something that black women, and yeah, you know, we get pulled over, absolutely. But the shooting, it, that's rare, very rare. So I think he could have talked about harassment by police because I'm sure that is part of Kalu's reality, I hope I'm not mispronouncing his name, and the reality of black men who live in affluent communities, but you're not policed like a stop and search average black person who's living in a suburb, but with working class black people, mostly in poor black people. Like that's just, it. so that's why I didn't get why he had to try to, to shoo that in. So like you were saying, Ryan, when he taught showing the black people on the news, this, this is what, okay. So I think so. Okay. So the scene, and I did like how they shot the film, you know, I, I was totally co-signed your point. They're like, I like the story. I like the way it was shot. I like the characters. So when they open that first scene, or I guess it's the second scene, because the first scene is him getting ready. So the second scene, we see the parents are watching a news segment and it's titled police versus the black community. So the mother says it's masochistic to watch the discussion. And the father responds, great art comes from great pain as he take notes. And I felt like this is the writer's reality where black is an experience. You want to explore the experience and find a creative source of pain. And even the father talked about he's seeing black masculinity is red. I'm not a creative, so I don't even know what that means. But this is it. This shows, I think, the writer and how they experience blackness. And don't get me wrong. I, I think that's fine. Like if you're at an affluent black family and they're Nigerian American, so they're they also have an immigrant experience, which is not typical of black people. Right. And you saw their money, very atypical. So that's fine if that's their black experience. So then why are you shoehorning in police shootings? It just doesn't make sense. I think you should stick with that. Stick with what you know. And I thought it's like, so even the conversation. I guess maybe, I don't know, devil's advocate. Yeah. Maybe he thought the character had to die to make the time loop happen. Oh, and he did need to die. No, he did need to die. But you know what? There's other ways because we we know since he lives a very white life, we can agree with that. 
that's how lots of bl- white teenage boys dies from accidents, car accidents, all say. sorts of things. So he just he he gets arrested, but then things. he dies from like being hit by a bus shortly after. Or I think he could have been harassed by police, God. but I think the real way he would have died would have been like that. He, you know, they could have done a beach thing where he's drowning in the ocean after he gets pissed off with Soren or something. Mm-hmm. They could have had a car accident. That is common for teenagers. He does drugs. So maybe that could have happened, not being alert enough to avoid an oncoming car so it didn't have to be police violence but yes you're right he did have to die for that to work yeah but for the dramatic element it has to be do we really need uh, uh, a film which focuses on a uh, poor black teenager who does die in that way uh, you know every time we could but but if he wanted to stick with what he knew that's not his experience as you're saying yeah yeah and i think he should focus on that like i don't see anything wrong with black people who don't live a typical black life talking about and writing about their experience. I think that's perfectly fine. I just then don't think you get to exploit what powerless black people go through as a way to, and I just felt like it was exploitative. I felt like it was exploiting the moment that we have right now with attention being given. And it wasn't necessary because he did have so many other aspects to the film that I think stood out as unique. And I even like the whole, the time aspect and, you know, and speaking of which, I think uh, even though I was also criticized for not liking it, there was a Spike Lee did a similar film where it was about time travel, but also about a police shooting. It's like, which what? one was that? Um, How can you forget? OK, I'm going to look it up. But I also didn't get it for that reason. It's like I don't it's and police shootings are so rare. Police harassment. Absolutely. Mass incarceration. A hundred percent. But the police shootings, that's. That's a very rare thing. And I'm not saying, of course, anyone who loses their life, it's tragic. It's horrible. You want justice for the family. It's just so rare. Why focus on that when the other things are much more typical? It kind of goes back to your point of why not have made it just about the gay story? Because one that cuts across, um, I would say that cuts across class and culture is there's this masculinity thing and Mm -hmm. and the relationship Soren has with his um father um and that problem that that central problem of his sexuality and and the masculinity that happens maybe in a different way but we can see that in different um families from different classes so I think he almost had he had something better going there with with just examining um maybe it was a film about Soren (laughs) (laughs) no but in a way yeah go ahead it was interesting i mean i it was interesting that 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 turn turn was the one who was who was soren's lover but it did make me think what if what how would the dad react if he brought one of the other lacrosse jocks back and said this is my boyfriend there's something about um turn both being black uh but also being not a jock so I, I thought that interrogation of what what could what could lead to a situation where Soren felt able to come out because he couldn't come out. That was the whole thing, wasn't it? Yeah. And and even Toon Date was a whole thing for him too. It's just it seemed like his parents were more um responsive uh to his coming out. But yeah, no, exactly. And that's what I'm saying. Like I think there were so many issues there that could have been more explored in depth because even the whole you know black masculinity came up for me in that his father studies black masculinity but he not talked to his son about interactions with the police i just found that so bizarre it's like 
So well, because they're maybe because they're rich, they just he just felt that that wasn't something they were going to encounter. Uh, was, there, was there an attempted comment there that his dad totally abstracted the notion, so he couldn't somehow connect it with reality? I don't know. Well, his dad, when they had the conversation, he said that he had been pulled over and he was giving him advice. So it's like, so your son drives alone and you wouldn't think to have say a word to him about that. I mean, anything's possible, but that's what I mean. Like, I think they could have had more of that um, around that theme of black masculinity and what that means, because certainly I think it does. Because it was so easy for Tunde in this story, like. Um, there was a slight hesitation with his dad, but then everything was fine about coming out, wasn't it? You know, really. <laughs> but but I think it's what you're saying, right? It's like for in this story, race only comes about when the police are killing you, and then race plays no other role in any part of his life. It's like again, why bring it up then? Because clearly your life is not affected by race, then don't bring it in. So I think um exactly that like masculinity was really key in his whole like even the <laughs> The bullying remark that I liked about him looking like a vampire hunter. That was also, that was a jab at his masculinity. The fact that he was dressed like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think, like you said too, the fact that he didn't play sports, he was seemed like to be following his dad's footsteps as being a cultural critic based on what we saw in the film class. So yeah, what that means for masculinity, with black masculinity, especially when you don't play sports. And 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 the the um the masculine or the male figure he identifies with most in the film is the central figure in uh, Four Hundred Blows, which is a white sort of I don't know child or like pubescent. Um, and so the film tries to echo that I think with the with the final shot of him and this idea that he's the film is speaking to you, and so. Yeah, it's kind of like, what else was I going to say about that? Um, I don't but, um, <laughs> someone, somebody speak. There's a, day, well, si- there's a radio like, silence. Well, I was trying to give you space so you could remember. Oh, so no, another what, no, I meant, what I meant was, please just talk and then I'll remember in the middle of the oh. sentence. Okay, no, great. Well, that's even better. Um, in fact, that reminds me of an interesting conversation I have with my dad about interrupting people, but I'm going to make a note of that. And we'll come back to it. So, um, and it, that's like as a side note, because I thought it was so funny because uh, um, I had a similar conversation with my colleague. Okay, so I thought it was interesting. Like he, I, so when remember he was in the therapist's office and he said that he identifies as black and gay and that they hate each other. And then he said, but I'm affluent and that should cancel out the other two strikes against him and I'm just like wait a second because I liked where he was going with the invisibility right being black but then to say black and gay hate each other but you're affluent that doesn't fit into affluence either and that's 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 now I remember what I was going to say at the beginning I said oh this is a subconsciously intersectional film but the the idea of intersectionality here is like two identities that barely like somehow don't touch each other like you know Soap and, soap and oil, you know. It's like um, really intersectionality is about how we all have um, uh, over, over, overlapping identities within each of us. And they're not, you can't really separate them. That's the whole point. We're all kind of bound up in it. And I think this film sort of is a gay story and is a story about race, but somehow, you know, they don't, they're not, in, they're not um, bound up enough in each other somehow. Exactly, because it's not a story about race. That is my point. And although although I should also say, like, I'm not I'm not into intersectionality. I think it's problematic on a number of fronts. But I will say, like, intersectionality does work when you're talking about identity. But exactly right. He didn't do that here. 
So not at, not at all. And it, that's what I'm saying. He was, cause that's the thing. I really like this story as a coming of age story about first love and self-acceptance. I thought he told that in a really interesting way, but I'm just like, shame on you for using black death as a plot device and capitalizing on police shootings of unarmed black men. Like it just wasn't necessary. There's an unease that I couldn't put my finger on and you've kind of like spelt it out. So that's that's useful. And would you go as far as to say that what he he's contributing something to that conversation that's unhelpful, that's kind of detrimental maybe? I think everyone who I've seen contribute to this conversation has been unhelpful, to be honest. Like, I don't think, I don't think, because, and, and that's, be, and if, I think it's because of that. They're trying to use something like, inter, I think intersectionality works when you're talking about identity, when you're doing these these cultural things. And it doesn't work when you're trying to make it work in politics. And to me, that's the problem I see, that everyone wants to explore the experience or win hearts and minds. It's like, that doesn't change anything. Like, that's been happening for 60 years now. How's life improved for you? So unfortunately, I think that's the problem that we those conversations aren't kept to exploring characters in a fictional way to have, you know, in film and theater. I think that's fine. But I think they're the ones who've kind of brought it to the political conversation to make it unhelpful. And it doesn't have to be unhelpful if we keep it in a cultural thing. So I've not yet seen any that I think really work for me in terms of improving this but that's because I think it is all about what the focus is and the focus is on I should feel comfortable and self-actualized which I think is true but I don't think that's what's going to improve things for people getting shot by police like even if you got rid of the police tomorrow it wouldn't change it will improve things and politics I think so they're not even there yet like they in fact he can't even see the fact that that's what buffers him from that life is his affluence and he doesn't even see that that's it no so and it could have been and that's the thing like so in my dream world i would love to see it him killed another way the same story you know what i always feel a kind of way when someone's only child dies when they have another one to fall back on you're just like oh that was it can be something that the family can bring them closer together but yeah but when you're an only child that's a different kind of stab there's no comedy spin on it basically well there could be that's that's what writers do though writers do fantastic things they make you laugh when you shouldn't they make you care about fictional characters i mean let's think about that we can watch something and get invested in people that aren't real that's what good writers can do um just to talk about like i think we need um what you know i i listed those three or those four films uh gay men in relationships with each other and i think we've got to the point where we need there to be another layer and we're saying here the way it's been done in this film race hasn't been effectively sort of um integrated within that within that narrative but we forget there's a third issue in this film well we did touch on it the third issue is uh, the the drug use, and I think there would have been enough of a film just really bringing out that 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 which I understand is a problem with teenagers in America at the moment with these kind of um, drugs, and and have that gay story as well. No, I agree. I think that would have been um, to delve into that more because I actually wasn't sure if it was my interpretation that he had a drug problem because it looked like he was taking more than what his doctor prescribed or if he was just using it in a prescribed way. So I don't, I'm not even sure if I was reading into it, but I had certainly read it as if he was having a drug problem. And exactly that's what I mean. It's just like, I, I think he was because just because you're a 
black, right? Doesn't mean that you're living this sort of black life. And he wasn't, in which case he didn't need to bring it in. So exactly. I think they could have focused on his relationship with Soren. They could have delved more into Marley because I think we're still unsure if she was really his best friend or if they were just kind of using each other. Um, and that drug use and what that meant. Because even then, I wasn't sure why he was taking it. Was it because he had anxiety? Because I looked up the medication. That's why I can't figure out because I looked up the drug because I think I'd heard of benzos before. And then I looked it up and that's exactly it. It seems like you can be prescribed for all sorts of conditions. So well, that was never relax. spelled out. But that's why it's and overprescribed. I, yeah, I don't know enough about the, the, the problem, but but, but I, I was sort of thinking not so much necessarily that that he uh, was uh, a drug abuser, but the, but just the, the, the more general problem teenagers have this higher level of anxiety than perhaps they're used to where they feel like they have to take these these drugs and that um that comes back to identity so in a way if if, if they pull that that uh, narrative out a bit more then we could bring the, the the race thing could come into it again because what i think what's happening is that teenagers whatever their identities are and that could be um to do with anything like the way they look or, or you know i don't know um uh mental health issues or whatever w- whatever they are that they that there's something about the world that we live in now and all the kind of everything that's so overwhelming that's making them feel they have to take these um these drugs so i don't know maybe there's something there things are getting overloading for a lot of people i mean especially like mm-hmm. this film was made before the pandemic but you know that um that and maybe I don't. Maybe, maybe the the rise in identity politics comes into it and and social media because the you know you have this mirror held up to you all the time and that's going to increase your anxiety levels. So what, what again, whatever your um, overlapping identities are, are kind of magnified. And maybe those drugs are just to kind of put it all you know, kind of chill it all out a bit. You know, kind of settle that that um those vibrations and that are, that are coming from the outside world i don't know all i know is that billy eilish did a, zo- a song called zan zannies about xanax and yeah. it Ooh. sounded like she she knew what she was singing <laughs> <laughs> keep it fresh yeah well mm. i can do one of my segues um was what, did this film have a moral i mean yeah but the really obvious one right that you can't no matter how many attempts he gets he won't get justice basically because you can't escape um the the trappings of race in america or something like that right whereas like in, in other other time loop films um uh, they tend to be comedic and lighthearted because at the end um the hero the protagonist realizes the mistakes he's made or whatever and it's in his own hands to address those and then he gets the ending he wants and then the time loop uh, breaks or whatever whereas here he's it doesn't work out that way because the problems lie outside of him in the system he lives in right well see i thought that that's why and we didn't talk about that because i actually thought that's why he stopped being reincarnated was because once he decided that Soren wasn't his hero, he was his own hero. He used his agency and decided that Soren wasn't going to save him. And once he decided to let go of that relationship, why which is he- a more conventional part of the time loop thing, because it's always about the most honest thing is going to be what, yeah. what 
and and that 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 kind and again i think if you re if you look at the gay story the film makes more sense because it ends with you know yeah like just like you said letting go of that thing that he's hanging on to that makes sense and then it breaks the the loop and i felt i learned something from that as well that was as much as i don't like tyler perry that was one line i liked from one of his films that sometimes god tries to take wrestle things away from us that we think we need the most and we don't need it and we have to let it go and um, I think that's an important message okay well on that positive note I think that's uh, all we have time for for tonight thank you so much Ryan for joining us for this discussion my god thank you so much for inviting me that went in all sorts of fun directions (laughs) I don't know which of them are going to be left in (laughs) (laughs) probably all of them right thank you so much everyone for listening that was us uh, at my dialorama for this fortnight Please do tweet us your comments at My Dilorama on Twitter or do contact us via our website if you've got any recommendations, requests or feedback. Thanks for listening.